Hello and welcome to The Ride Up With Where. This is a pilot edition of a new podcast. The series will launch in January and it will be available on the Sitcom Club website and podcast feed and indeed everywhere. And for the first time, there will be bonus material available. More on that later. Anyway, hello. I'm Gary. Who are you? I'm Tilt. It's been a while. It has. It has been a while since we've talked about sitcoms. Certainly has, Ollie. So there's an awful lot to fit into this pilot cast. So do not be concerned if we appear to be rushing through any particular parts of the story of Are You Being Served? Because we will be doing what the YouTube influencers term a deep dive on many of the different aspects of the show over the course of, I guess, 2023. At the end of this pilot show, we'll explain how we'll be working our way through all 10 series of Are You Being Served? And we would like your help with this. We'll give you more on that later on. A couple of quick notes. First of all, we're, we're going to ease into it. We're going to you know, discuss a little bit of more sort of contemporary bits and pieces, first of all. And then we're going to discuss a little bit about Croft and Lloyd and a little bit about the, the cast of the show and just sort of bring various strands together so we're all on the same page when it comes to the lift doors opening for the first time. One very quick little housekeeping note we'll just mentioned just now. We're discussing a program which ran from 1972 to 1985. Occasionally we'll discuss topics and we'll use language prevalent at the time. As an example, we're going to mention a famous story later on involving Bill Cotton, John Inman and an offensive slang word. I mentioned this now at the outset. Offensive slang word for homosexuals. A good content note really lets people know whether they think they're in a mindset to hear that or not. We'll mention it immediately beforehand anyway. But the reason I'm mentioning that in particular is that obviously that's going to come up a fair bit over the course of basically discussion of 10 series. So hopefully we don't cause any offence in the course of our discussions. Anyway, before we get to... 1972 and earlier, I just want to chat a little bit about how we find Are You Being Served in 2022? Because I don't know about yourself, Till, but I guess probably your memories will be similar. Are You Being Served, strangely enough, was not a program which got repeated an awful lot in comparison to other series of that era. There was a period of time, I being served finished in early 1985. That last series got another repeat in the summer of that year. Beyond that, there's a good sort of 11 year period where I being served isn't really being seen at all. The film was shown on BBC television, usually around about Christmas time, three times from 88. Of course, we've got Grace and Favour, which we talked about before in the sitcom club. There was a Telly Addicts Christmas special in 1995 with some of the cast. Do you remember watching Pilot Paradise in 1996? No. I was going out a lot, you know, I was I was I was busy. I was popular. You were you were you were part of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. But some of us on a Friday night would have been ensconced in front of Fantasy Football League at quarter past eleven on BBC Two on a Friday. So when that came to an end in May of 96, some bright spark at the BBC had a fabulous idea of putting on free pilot episodes of sitcoms. And they showed Happy Ever After, the precursor to Terry and June, showed Heidi High, I believe in full length, 40 minutes, and they showed Up Pompeii. And this proved popular enough 
that rapidly this series got an extension and that all five shows were added. We got to see Citizen Smith, in which Artro Morris was Shirley's dad, later Peter Vaughn, and we've just been watching a series in which they appear side by side as a couple of coppers who are taking no nonsense and want answers. London Weekend Television's The Gold Robbers. It's fab. It is fab. The only thing that let it down was that Tony Steedman didn't turn up. True, Because yes. if the three of them had been on the screen together, that would have been first class. We saw Old Brother with Derek Nimmo, and we saw Open All Hours. Funny thing about Open All Hours was that they had this like sort of stylized Pilot Paradise opening with a black and white test card, and that version got used on UK Gold for years afterwards. Strange how certain things just accidentally live on. Last of the Summer Wine, I got an airing as well. I had to point out that that day in particular, because those two last shows were shown side by side, and on that day on the BBC, you had cricket from Lords, you had racing from Ascot, you had the Olympics from Atlanta, and then at 4.25 in the morning, you had a Sid Field film, Cardboard Cavalier from 1949. Now, that does sound tilt like you and I got together and we're just allowed to do what we wanted with the schedules. <laughs> well, there's, there's far too much sport, but I need to go back to 1996 to tell myself to program the video for Cardboard Cavalier. <laughs> now, as if to underline this point about are you being served and the fact that you you heard of it, you saw clips of it, we all saw... John Inman, Molly Sugden, so-and-so, and being interviewed about the show, you didn't get long stretches of repeat runs on BBC One. The pilot, still in its, at the time, black and white telerecording state, got an airing as part of Pilot Paradise. And when the producers of Pilot Paradise went looking for information about the pilot episode, they were told that no information is available for this show. <laughs> so for whatever re- now 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 we have all manner of books and celebratory material about the series but at that time i wouldn't say it was forgotten about but i mean even the bbc's own archives did not contain the program as completed form for that show which sounds bizarre but there it was so that repeat in pilot paradise in the summer then led to a Christmas time repeat of a show which wasn't a Christmas episode. But a lot of people, I think, tend to think that it is. A change is as good as a rest, which is the episode where they are assigned to the toy department for a week. That got an airing on the 24th of December 1996 in the slot that would normally be the regional news. And then in September of 97. BBC One began repeating episodes from the very beginning. These were edited by David Croft just to take out any little bits where there might have been like a a dated topical reference or sometimes just to speed up the plot or whatever it may have been. And they were very successful. They ran all the way through the autumn, the winter of 97, 98, or further repeats again on Sundays in 1999. And from that point onwards... It's then just continuously been shown, gets shown obviously on gold these days and so on. But till when would you have first become aware of Are You Being Served? Do you actually remember when you would have seen an entire episode of it? I will give you the same answer I gave when I was on Goonpod, another fine podcast from our friend Tyler Adams. 
it's like asking me, when did you first become aware of the sky? It was just there. It's just one of those things that eventually you kind of notice, yes, it's on, but it's not like, wow, what's this? I think I'll sit down and give it a chance. It was in production during my childhood, so it would have just been on TV. One thing I do remember, I don't know why I got this impression, but for years, I was under the impression that Mr. Lucas was effectively the same as Mr. Humphreys. I thought that they were like Julian and Sandy. Oh, right. And I think it was when I saw Pilot Paradise, I actually realized that was entirely incorrect. But where I got the impression from, I have no idea. The reason we chose Are You Being Served as a subject for a long-form podcast series is that there is just so much of it. There are 69 episodes across 10 series. There's a film, there's a stage play, there's a American adaptation, an Australian adaptation. And there's so much ephemera about it, plus the fact that it's also... A breakfast cereal and ongoing for hemorrhoids. I thought you weren't going to mention my, my ailment. But <laughs> of course, there's also the bizarre business of it being so incredibly popular in America as well. Half the time when you look up information about are you being served, you're only a couple of clicks away from probably a PBS interview with John Inman or Molly Sugden or whoever it may be. So we felt, okay, we'd like to go really in-depth on a series in the same way as when we're doing Jaffa Cakes for Proust, which we still are occasionally, and we talked about things like, say, the, the development of overnight television or breakfast television, things like that. When we went into a lot of detail about those things, we thought, could we do the same thing for a sitcom? And, okay, no offense to the, the producers of ATV's Up the Workers, for example, but there's only so much information that you can find about that. <laughs> I think we know more about Her Majesty's Pleasure than about 99.9% <laughs> of the general public. Just in case anybody's stumbling across this for the first time, I think you should actually clarify that that is a prison sitcom from Granada. And you're not actually yes. saying that, that we're a couple of old lags who've done, you know, more bird than, than, than <laughs> Bilotti. Um <laughs> Yes, we've found as many stills from it. How many episodes exist? One? Uh, one, yeah. One. We've seen that one. Yeah, well, I was going to say, there's no point, you know, disguising it. Yeah, we'll just be honest. We've seen it. Yeah, we have, yeah. We have seen one episode of, of Majesty's Pleasure, which is bizarre. Right, the, the strangest thing about that is prison sitcom, five years before Porridge, and who is the governor? Michael Barrington, yeah. governor of Slade Prison, five years later. Absolutely and Ken bizarre. Jones is one of the screws. He is indeed, yeah. I think you now know as much as anybody knows. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. John Sharp is the headline actor in the show. And uh, it was quite broad, the episode that we saw. So do you reckon we should do a sitcom club special about a certain Andrew Sachs sitcom at some point as well? Oh, we've got a, a lot of things on the things to do urgent list. One more thing yeah. won't cause it to collapse in on itself. Any road up. Okay, let's... Start at the very beginning, as Roy Hudd said. It's a very good place to start. So let's see where the BBC, David Croft and Jeremy Lloyd all are at the point when I being served, which is our screens. David Croft, first of all, he appears 
uncredited in the classic British film Goodbye Mr. Chips. It is his single appearance as an actor on screen. When he went into the army, he rose to the rank of major. But during this period, he spent time in India. That would obviously serve as inspiration for A and Half Hot Mum with Jeremy Perry. He then resumed his show business career. He was writing pantomimes and with his friend, a composer called Cyril Ornadell, he was writing musical numbers for stage shows and records. One of the shows that they had written songs for was a review in Blackpool that was put on by the impresarios George and Alfred Black. They were part of the consortium that was about to open up Tiny Tees Television in 1959. Now, if you want to read all about that, just Google Welcome to Tiny Tees. There's a fabulous primary source article on the Transdiffusion website, all about the launch of Tainty's television. And a friend of David Croft's, Bill Lyon Shaw, was controller of programs. And they approached David Croft about joining them as a producer. So David Croft joined Tainty's and he was producing a daytime variety show and he was also producing ad mags. Till, do you want to give us a quick pressy on advertorials and ad mags and things of that ilk before they were outlawed. Yeah, they're general. Gary uses the phrase advertorial, which is something you still see a lot of. Well, you see a lot of on British television. I certainly see a lot of on American television. But generally, advertorials now are just plugging one product. So it's kind of pretending to be a program, but it's really all centered around why you should buy uh, the cornballer, if you've seen Arrested (laughs) Development. So... Ad mags were more general, so it would be kind of like a little program with people that you'd recognize. They're almost characters you'd recognize. I think I think some of them were broadly sort of fictionalized, but they would talk through a number of different products. Actually, these kind of things had already existed on the BBC, where they were called shopping guides, but they were much more discreet about their commercial aims. So the program would open and you see these people and they'd just start talking about, uh, oh, you're looking very full of the joys of life. Oh, well, that's because (laughs) I've been using this astringent paste uh, (laughs) where they really need astringent properties. And that's 10 and 6 from um, that guy down the pub. Really? Well, that's that's it. Because I was down the pub the other day and I bought this second-hand record you know, I'm making, I really am making them sound not like they are people would discuss products as if they were having a conversation and the idea is is that you then quickly write down oh yes that's what I want I seem to remember a clip where somebody mentions his skiffle mad niece Lulu uh, which skiffle mad is you know you, once you hear that you don't really forget Eventually, the ad mags were decided to be not quite the thing. Excessive commerciality was something that was not welcomed on commercial television. And we might hear more about that when we talk about the British mindset and the British mindset towards commerciality was very different back then than it is today. So David Croft is producing shows at Tiny T's. He's about to produce his first sitcom there. More on that in a wee while. During this time, it was done alone Philip Jones, who, of course, would go on to become head of light entertainment at ABC and later on at Thames, who explained to David Croft the process of television production. David Croft wrote in his autobiography, Jones placed three pennies on a table and said, suppose that these are the cameras 
You then place a finger on each. When you move them about, don't cross your fingers and you won't get your cables tangled. What about the booms and the sound? Croft asked. Oh, don't bother about them. They'll sort themselves out. The lesson took about three minutes and is the only instruction I have ever had about how to produce television. I, I reckon he meant hairpennies or sixpences or something. Three <laughs> decimal pennies would have been <laughs> clanking into each other unless your fingers are weirdly far apart. Well, yeah, but the old cameras were, were, were fairly. I know, but we're, we're trying to be in depth and, I'm, you know, trying to do some myth busting. And I know too much about pre-decimal currency to just accept that story on the face of it. Well, I've got, I've got to be honest. I mean, if we don't know something, we will say so. We won't guess. So I think the chances of us being able to confirm exactly what denomination was used in that conversation between the two of them is, is, is pretty slim. But anyway, if we ever do, we'll, we'll let you know. So Croft was attendees for 18 months. He went back to freelancing in 1960 and then joined the BBC. He applied for a role there and... He worked with Benny Hill, Dick Emery. He was directing episodes of This Is Your Life. And then he began his incredible run. And I mean, it's, it's still to this day, it's, it's just unbelievable the, the, the amount of output that Croft is associated with. He was initially producing Hugh and I, Hugh Lloyd and Terry Scott. Later on, he was producing Beggar My Neighbor with June Whitfield and Reg Farney. For that latter show, he cast Jimmy Petty in a one-off role as Varney's brother. I'm sure everybody's seen that story being told. Petty takes the opportunity to handcraft a couple of scripts for a sitcom about the home guard called The Fighting Tigers. That's the story of another podcast. Meanwhile, Jeremy Lloyd. Now, as we all know, Jeremy Lloyd, at this time best known for appearing in Ronan Martin's Laughing. Now, one thing I want to look is, was there maybe a policy of having an English performer on Ronan Martin's laughing because looking at the way the dates line up Jeremy Lloyd comes in after Roddy Maud Roxby goes out Roddy Maud Roxby would then go on to uh, appear on the Michael Pale and Terry Jones scripted sketch show The Complete and Utter History of Britain it would eventually be on a Saturday morning thing is it called Parallel 9 in which he played Maketo <gasps> right was he not was he not in Turnbull's Half Hour as well Yes, yes. Because I do, re- yes, I recognize that name. Right, okay, excellent. Now, if anybody wants to start a Parallel 9 podcast, I know somebody who'd really be into that. But <laughs> I don't really think that's that's going to be our thing. Anyway, so, okay, well, we will come back to that. Make a note of that. Jeremy Lloyd file, compulsory casting of Englishmen in American shows. So Lloyd had uncredited bit parts in various film and TV at this time, including the Beatles films, Hard Day's Night and Help. He also had a credited part in something that's very, very close to my heart. Oh? He was in a couple of episodes of Callan as a character called Maitland. And those were shot while they waited for the actor Anthony Valentine to become free to take over the role of Toby Mears in the pilot of Callan had been played by Peter Bowles. But here's the thing. Here is just what a decent (laughs) guy Jeremy Lloyd must have been. How very understanding of him. One of the producers of Callan had wanted Jeremy Lloyd to play Toby Mears. The other, who I guess had the casting vote, wanted Anthony Valentine. But while the guy we actually want becomes free, could you play a very similar character for two episodes? It's a few weeks' work, and he did it. Sadly, those episodes are missing. I would really like to see 
Jeremy Lloyd in a very, very hard-nosed and bleak drama show as a very unpleasant character. The episodes that we're watching, because we're watching some between ourselves and, and others at the moment, and we've got to the Patrick Moore era. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, he's got an evil face. <laughs> no, he's really he's really good at it. He's Yeah, it's a belt of a show. He's got yeah. a sneer that I think even Lee Van Cleef would be envious of. <laughs> oh. So, May 1970, after a two-week courtship, Jeremy Lloyd marries Joanna Lumley. On the honeymoon, they bump into David and Anne Croft at Nice Airport. Croft had met Lloyd some years earlier when Lloyd was writing for the Billy Cotton Band show. Lloyd is having a fairly thin time of it when he returns to England after Ronan Martin. In space of one year, his only writing credit was a sketch for Jimmy Cliverow. Could be worse, could be worse. You know, I'm not I'm not down on Jimmy Clitheroe. I've got one of his sitcoms on DVD. Which also includes the only surviving episode of Just Jimmy. This is not the last you will hear of Just Jimmy in this podcast. That's true. So whilst he is expressing to his wife his annoyance having received another rejection letter, he's reeling off all the different types of shows that have been, and he's thinking, what do they, as in the commissioners, the powers that be, what do they want? He then tells Joanna Lumley about an idea for a sitcom that hasn't been done yet and goes on to explain about his time working at uh, an outfitter's. Now, don't stop, all shout stop, pin stop, rights. Stop, stop. Don't, no, yes. no, no. Do not all shout pin rights progress. We know. We know what you're thinking. Yes. We will Gary, delve Gary, into... Pardon the expression. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, yes, okay. Set in a department store. That is more about the misadventures of one man. Exactly. But we will delve into all of that, previous Outfitters sitcoms in one of the bonus casts in the new year. But Pinwright's Progress, of course, the very first sitcom on British television. And you had an idea about this, didn't you? Because you, you had a sort of recasting, but not recasting idea involving Pinwright. So, yes, as we'll get into later, when Mr. Granger is replaced, he's replaced with Mr. Tebbs, played by Sidney... Po- no, sorry, played by <laughs> James Hater. I was just thinking how wonderful it would be if instead of Mr. Tebbs, James Hater <laughs> had been playing Mr. Penwright as he had in Penwright's Progress, the, the first regular sitcom for television ever in the world, as far as I'm aware of it, from 1947. Just creating a universe for no reason. Nobody would, nobody would remember, nobody would appreciate it, except me. <laughs> I would love to be able to say as part of the bonus content, we're going to do a live streaming watch-along of Pinwright's Progress, but would you believe we haven't quite been able to lay our hands on it just yet? I have a feeling at least one script exists of Pinwright's Progress. So, yes, we'll delve into all of that next year. Anyway, Lloyd tells Lumley about his brief time working at Simpsons. Initially, he works at the factory in Stoke Newington and then in the menswear department at the Piccadilly department store itself. He begins to outline a sitcom based upon this. He draws on his experience of the pecking order and long-standing protocols such as the flitting of handkerchiefs for display in the pocket square and so on. Should we talk about department stores as a concept? I think so, yes. Well, I grew up with sort of the remains of two department stores in my hometown. 
but they're weirdly alien now. Well, they're not alien, of course, if you go to London, they still have them. Harrods being the most famous example. But I imagine that there are people who are slightly younger than us to whom they seem ridiculously quaint. But yes, simply the idea of the huge building on many floors of a shop that did not specialize. Every floor had a different department. So menswear, ladieswear, but also tools and technology. I still remember in Bradford, Sunwin House, which was, I believe, a branch of the cooperative. This is how recently department stores were still a thing. Going in there, going to the top floor, which is where they had the electronics, to buy a mini disc player. (laughs) What we didn't really have was... They weren't crawling with staff. They weren't floor walkers. There, there might be like a couple of members of staff for each department, and they'd probably hide because dealing with the public has, I think, become a much more awful job than it has. Now I'm going to talk about why boom has ruined everything. Sorry, just looking. <laughs> don't really have time for that. Let's talk about another BBC sitcom for which only one episode exists. No, funnily enough, if you want to see this sitcom, I think I'm right in saying this is actually doing the rounds on YouTube these days because there is one surviving episode of this. It's the episode that, that everybody's seen a specific clip of Jeremy Lloyd climbing up at the back of a sofa being hung over and what have you. Joanna Lumley is beginning work on a BBC sitcom which has been conceived by Jilly Cooper entitled It's Awfully Bad for Your Eyes, Darling. And Jeremy Lloyd has an on-screen role in this series. This airs as part of Comedy Playhouse in April of 1971. Talk a wee bit about Comedy Playhouse in a moment. Full series is commissioned. And then at the behest of Bill Cotton, who is the head of Light Entertainment, has been since 1970 on the BBC, David Croft is brought in to salvage what is perceived as an unsuccessful transition from Cooper's original idea to the scripts that are shortly about to be recorded. Croft wasn't keen on the show itself, so Lloyd was handed the task of rewriting the episodes. The script editor objected to the amendments, and then both Croft and Lloyd bowed out of the project. Incidentally, Trevor Bannister appears in episode four of the series, which is now lost, sadly enough. But anyway, during that time, Lloyd confides in Croft about his script based upon his work at Simpsons. The name of the script is Fun in Store. Lloyd explains that the script is now in the hands of ATV. Croft asks, can he retrieve it? If he can, then potentially the BBC can make something of it. Lloyd's original idea was just about the men's outfitters, and Croft suggested the addition of a ladies' department and therefore the conflict between the two, which became the central plot of the pilot and then the theme of the early series of the show. Now, the aforementioned comedy Playhouse, that began on BBC TV, as was in 1961. First couple of series, the scripts were written purely by Gotland and Simpson. Each episode was a standalone sitcom, and various series developed from comedy Playhouse, including Steadtone Son, Meet the Wife, Todefas Dupar, Not Pompeii. Other writers were brought in from series three onwards. In the 1972 run, there were seven editions of the show, David Croft convinced Bill Cotton to take on Lloyd's department store script as one of the episodes. And his argument was, it would be all studio-based, there'd be no film, there'd be no expensive star names, the whole thing could be done on a low budget. So, we've got the green light, pilot is going to happen, and now it's a case of casting it. 
as one of our bonus features in the new year, we're going to have nice long form profiles of each of the principal cast members in the series for all 10 series. So for this pilot today, we're going to take a brief look at each of the original cast members and then what brought them to Grace Brothers. And we're going to start with Trevor Bannister, because of course, as we know from the first couple of series of Served, Trevor Bannister is our guy. He's our man on the inside and he is the one who's asking all the questions that we need answers to. And he's also got top billing, effectively. He actually has specified to David Croft that he will do this show if he has top billing shared with Molly Sugden. So Trevor Bannister trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, performed in rep company theatre productions throughout the 50s. Now there's something we want to underline with three thick red lines, rep company, because it's something that no longer really exists in modern Britain. Just the sheer proliferation of theatrical companies throughout the country. And particularly looking at the Are You Being Served cast, there's a really strong basis of theatrical training. So maybe at some point we might want to do sort of a bonus thing, just discussing the whole repertory company system. But yes, it's a very, very theatrical talent base in this show. So one of the rep companies that Trevor Bannister appears with is the Arthur Bruff Players, which we'll hear more about later on. And amongst the shows he performs in is a farce called The Chickwell Chicken. And the future Mr. Granger himself appears in this production. Bannister makes his West End debut in Billy Liar at the Cambridge Theatre in 1960. And he is turning up all over the place on television, usually in dramatic roles. He's got a recurring role in a rediffusion sci-fi series and its sequel called Object Z. Then in 1968, he plays the title role in creator of Coronation Street, Tony Warren's three-part drama, The War of Darky Pillbeam, as a spiff who builds a black market enterprise. Now that we can say exists and exists on tape. Oh. Granada Production, they have, a, they have a lot more surviving videotape than most of their contemporaries. In fact, a trailer for Darky Pillbeam actually exists at the end of an episode of Mr. Rose, which is available on DVD. And I hope at some point Network might consider putting out The War of Darky Pillbeam on DVD. Also turning up in the cast of that is Roy Barraclough as Bent Harry. Hey. And of course, Roy Barraclough would go on to play Mr. Granger in the 2016 staging of I Being Set. So quickly after that... Trevor Bannister assumes the role of heavy breathing in three series of The Dustbin Men for Granada. This was derived from a one-off 1968 play, There's a Hole in Your Dustbin, Delilah. Who played heavy breathing in that, Till? Harold Innocent. Hey. Now, the thing is that heavy breathing is so called because supposedly he is uh, servicing the women <laughs> of the uh, town sexually. Harold Innocent doesn't really look the type. Maybe that's the entire point of his casting, is you can you never can tell. Trevor Bannister's a more conventional sex symbol. Yes. Of course, that play and most of the series were written by Jack Rosenthal. So we've got Trevor Bannister, and he is going to play the junior member of staff at Grace Brothers at the age of 38. 
checks notes. See also Reg Farney, the young jackal lad in On the Buses, aged 52. I think we've got quite a lot of mileage out of that kind of thing in, in previous podcasts. But Tilt will never pass up an opportunity if we're ever watching Top of the Pops to point out that Jeff Lynn is like, I don't know, 21 in a performance when he looks like he's, you know, had quite a hard paper round and is now pushing 50. Anyway, Trevor Bannister is going to share top billing with Molly Sugden. And Tilt is very helpfully written out the correct pronunciation of what looks like Keeley, because it is in fact called Keefley, the area that Molly Sutton is from. Now I really should know that because I, I live around these parts. So can we just stop for regular listeners of the sitcom club, just quickly mention that you now live in Leeds. I do, I do live in Leeds, yes. You used to live in Glasgow. That's correct. And now you live in Leeds, which is the gateway to Bradford. So you're in my you're in my part of the BBC, country now. But no, I work Let's for not my TV. No, stop. Um, <laughs> I nearly mentioned it earlier, and we can't. You know, that's that is a filthy song from uh, well, VT Christmas tape. We've explained Christmas tapes elsewhere. No, no, but yeah, we've, we've done that anyway. So okay, so Molly Sugden after she leaves school, she works at a munitions factory in Keighley. She then moves south and she attends the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. 1946, as part of the students' theatre group, she appears in a performance entitled The Shining Hour. One reviewer writes, Molly Sugden as Hannah was convincingly suspicious. She appears in the theatre for the 1950s. She's an established player in comedy plays and pantomimes. 1956, she plays alongside Fora Hurd in Walter Greenwood's Saturday Night at the Crown. This ran in Blackpool during the summer, but where did it debut till? Bradford Alhambra. Hey, hey, hey. Did you say Alhambra? Yes, I'm used to pronouncing it that way. Oh, okay. Speaking of that area, though, of course, 1959, she appears with Halifax's own Wilfred Pickles. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, this is... let's, let's, just pull, no, let's just pull in a little bit of British culture here. This is interesting. Wilfred Pickles had been a newsreader. It's not uncommon for actors to become newsreaders in Britain. People like Kenneth Kendall had started out as actors. Wilfred Pickles became a, a newsreader during the war because it was felt that his flat northern vowels would be difficult for an enemy broadcaster to imitate. You get this thing of like, this is the news from the BBC and this is Wilfred Pickles reading it. That is so that they can be absolutely sure, the listeners at home can be absolutely sure, this is the news from the BBC, this is the name of the newsreader, you know that he's a BBC newsreader. And on top of that, his Yorkshire accent, those Germans, they can't imitate a Yorkshire accent. For people of a certain age, people who are less than 90 like us, Probably seen Wilfred Pickles in the film version of Billy Liar. And of course, as I'm sure we all are regular viewers of Talking Pictures TV, we've all seen For the Love of Ada. Oh, yes. Anyway, he appeared with Molly Sogden in a BBC television play called The Way of an Angel. Now, meanwhile, as we mentioned before, 1959, David Croft is at Time Tees and he is about to be handed his first sitcom as producer. The show is called Under New Management. It's a sitcom set in a derelict pub and it stars two northern comedians, Glenn Melvin and Danny Ross. They mentioned George and Alfred Black 
the co-founders of Time Tees earlier on, David Croft wrote, The Blacks put Molly Sugden into the show as Glenn's wife. At first, this didn't please me at all because I didn't know Molly or her work. I wanted to do my own casting, but I very soon came to love and admire her. During the 60s, Molly Sugden then becomes a well-known face in British sitcoms. Croft himself casts her in the aforementioned Hugh and I. She also appears with Benny Hill, Harry Worth. She has a recurring role in the Jimmy Clifford series Just Jimmy, that you mentioned earlier on, one surviving episode on DVD. And over an 11-year period, I think it is, but spaced out, she appears as Annie Walker's rival, Nellie Harvey in Coronation Street. Now, Till, you mentioned floor walkers earlier on. Yes. I think what we need for the role of a floor walker is a tall, slightly imposing chap, maybe sort of military background. What do we reckon? (laughs) Okay. Now, we could just say Frank Thornton was an everything, and that would suffice, because that's true. If you watch any British comedy film, any sitcom, any sketch show, anything from the 60s, all the way through to the 90s, chances are you're going to see Frank Thornton. He's also in a fair few um, B-movie dramas in the 50s. Radio Cab Murder, Stock Car. He's uncredited. He appears as a barman in an adaptation, very loose adaptation, of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. You watch as many British B-movies as I do, you keep seeing him. (laughs) I mean, I watch so many British B-movies, one of these days Matthew Sweet's going to call me and tell me to stop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not healthy <laughs> so Thornton like Bannister and Sugden he also attends an acting school in this case the London School of Dramatic Art he toured with plays in Ireland before enrolling in the RAF during the war later on he joined a rep company in Southsea performed a summer season for Bernard Delfont and he appeared in dramatic roles in plays like Buster by Ted Willis again just a little interesting note Ted Willis creator of Dixon of Doc Green which is often shown as as an example of sort of patrician views towards 1950s society. Ted Willis, former communist and eventual baron in the House of Lords and also creator of Dixon of Doc Green and Sergeant Cork. Hey, that is a good show. And Yeah, but Sergeant Cork, that is in its themes, political out- outlook, that show is pretty damn red. There's a famous one with Ronald Lacey as a man who owned the Victoria Cross. It's just basically like the British Empire was just a sham for keeping shareholders fat and greedy. Amazing stuff. Sorry, just, you know, thought that was an interesting sidestep. So by 1950, Frank Fonten is appearing in variety shows on both BBC television and radio. From this point onwards, he's an ever-present supporting actor, performer across film, theatre, TV and radio. He's played almost as many police officers as David Lodge. He's appeared in the aforementioned Dixon and Dark Green. He's been in William Tell, Danger Man, Hancock, The Avengers, Steptoe, Rag Trade and so on. And of course, what's his greatest role, Till? Oh, definitely Mr. A&R in Gonks Go Beat, which I have on Blu-ray and I care not who knows it. <laughs> Would you just like to repeat that last sentence in case anybody missed it? I have Gonks Go Beat on Blu-ray. <laughs> See, I always sort of feel self-conscious when I mention my VHS collection of general election coverage, but when you come out with something like that, I yeah, it, it 
just pales in comparison. Not only do I have it on Blu-ray, I've watched it. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time we reach 1972, the year of served, Frank has been in the Morgan Wise show. He's been in It's a Square World with Michael Benteen. Which I will be talking about at some point in the future with hey. Tyler Adams on Goonpod. He's also appeared, amongst other things, he's appeared in two episodes of Hugh and I. You keep on hearing about that show. Hugh and I and the guest casting of that show seems to be fundamental in the eventual casting of Served. It's been two episodes of that, 162, 165. Sadly, they never cast one of the show's fans in Hugh and I. Because in an interview while she was in London, Sophia Loren was asked what she does in London. She sort of said that she sort of stayed in her hotel room watching what she called Huge and I. (laughs) So the chance was there. So I think it's fair to say, and I really hope nobody takes this personally, but if you are listening to this and you don't know who Frank Thornton is, the best thing that we could say is that you presumably have stumbled upon this show by accident. John Inman made his stage debut at the age of 13, like Jeremy Lloyd. He also worked in Gentleman's Outfitters in his youth. He worked as a stage manager and acted in Rep. He appeared as Buttons in Cinderella at the Chelmsford Civic in 1963. Also in the cast was Barry Howard. Inman and Howard would then together play the Ugly Sisters for eight years and occasionally reprise the roles such as in The Good Old Days in 1975. David Croft first saw John Inman in July of 1964 when he appeared in Salad Days at the Goldos Green Hippodrome. Without the aid of Sam Peckinpah. Playing alongside Howard. That must look wonderful and hideous in Blu-ray quality. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got there yet. Um, he's playing alongside Howard. And of course, you know the name Barry Howard, principally from Heidi High, Croft and Petty. Croft said of Inman in that show, Salad Days, he could dance and sing and the audience loved him. Croft then gave Inman a small role in an episode of a BBC Two sitcom starring Roy Kinnear. It was called A Slight Case Of. This one in particular was called A Slight Case Of, The Enemy Within. John Inman's mentioned this before about standing behind Duncan McRae and getting laughs himself and Duncan McRae being confused as to where are all these laughs coming at unexpected points in the script. Subsequently, Croft cast Inman as the gatekeeper in a BBC Two performance in colour of the Mikado, starring Harry Worth as Coco. I don't think that, that's lost, isn't it? Well, that was going to be my question to yourself because you've got all the gear there when it comes to the lost shows. And uh, yeah, trust me, if we had it, we would have watched it by now. And uh, Alas, not. So, February the following year, David Croft directs a musical adaptation of H.G. Wells and Veronica at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry before it transfers to the West End. In the cast is John Inman. We'll talk more about this in our bonus feature about David Croft because seemingly it's a show that himself and Anne Croft put quite a lot of energy into and it was a disappointment when the show itself failed to, to take off. But Croft himself was impressed with Inman's performance. He wrote him a note saying, one day I shall write you something that you can really get your teeth into. And John Inman revealed years later that he'd kept that letter. Three years after this, Croft sends Inman the script for the pilot of Are You Being Served and offers him the role of Mr. Humphreys. 
Croft initially envisaged Humphreys as being a sort of secondary character, as we'll see over the course of this series. This altered somewhat. Till, you're a fan of the good old days, aren't you? Yeah, well, I've watched, uh, I think, as many of the BBC Four repeats as I could get sent over. They're not, they've stopped doing them, though. It's just a shame. No, I enjoyed the good old days. Yes. I think you can make a fabulous compilation of Joy Min's appearances because... Oh, his Frank Randall impression is magnificent. Yeah, exactly. That was what I was going to mention. And it's completely um, unlike Mr. Humphreys, a uh, lecherous old geezer. <laughs> effectively... <laughs> it would have been nice. I mean, okay, I know it's sort of um, playing with a format, although not in a way that they, they, they didn't eventually do, but I think there was an episode where... Jack Haig turns up as an old tramp and he's sort of begging basically in the store. And Mr. Humphreys, in, in the absence of Captain Peacock, Mr. Humphreys is the chap who has to deal with him. It would have been lovely if they'd given that role, nothing against Jack Haig, but if they'd given that role to him as well. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have been, that would have been yes. quite smart. <laughs> so Arthur Bruff was born in 1905 but is not actually the oldest cast member. There are a lot of people in this show. What an amazing balancing act. <laughs> the <laughs> yes. pilot is that you're not thinking, oh, no, what this thing's just going to collapse under its own. No, everybody gets a bite of the cherry. So whilst he was working in a solicitor's office, developed an interest in the theatre. He attended RADA, graduated from there in 1929. A couple of years after this, himself and his wife, Elizabeth Adaman, rented the Lees Pavilion in Folkestone and formed the Pioneer Players Repertory Company. Then in 1932, the following advertisement appears in the stage. Theatrical Employers Registration Act 1925. Notice is hereby given that Frederick Arthur Baker, residing at 26 Christchurch Road, Folkestone and carrying on business... I do love that phrase, under the name of Arthur Bruff and the Arthur Bruff Players intends to apply to the Kent County Council for registration under the above-named Act, dated April 28th. Tell if you ever carried on business in public or, or elsewhere. How dare you? No, I've always been freelance. So the Arthur Bruff Players stage productions in Folkestone through until June of 1969. One lovely little detail that I discovered when researching this, was that the Lees Pavilion in Folkestone, they staged matinees of their performances. And one advantage that the, this particular theatre had was that you could take out rows of seats. So for the matinees, they would take out each other row and then people could sit and have their afternoon tea whilst they were watching the play. <laughs> I've been to a, something not entirely dissimilar cinematically. It was done as an educational program so they could show old films uh, and it was done in a classroom setting. But what people would do is they'd bring their snacks and put them on the table in front of them. <laughs> I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yes, yes, that's very nice. Yeah, no, no we, we need more civilised auditoriums like this. So Brough and Adam frequently appeared in the productions themselves and amongst the many actors whose careers the company helped establish where Peter Barkworth, Polly James, as we've heard, Trevor Bannister, another actor who spent time within the company was Anne Croft, who enjoyed the run. As David Croft was to remark, he was a good boss and had a lovely stage personality. Broth could see where Rep Theatre was going 
It was obviously declining in the face of mass media competition. So he began to appear in supporting roles in various films, such as The Green Man with Alistair Sim, and in television dramas such as the ITV television Playhouse, Adam Adamant Lives, Sex and Blake, Public Eye, and The Power Game. He also appears in a 1970 episode of Dad's Army, obviously with David Croft, before being cast as Mr. Granger in the pilot. Okay, now I have to check and see if the episodes of Adam Adam It Lives and Public Eye that he's in are ones that I have on DVD. Sexton Blake, assuming it's the Lawrence Payne series, uh, only one episode exists of that. And I've never really watched the Power Game. Power Game got repeats on Channel 4, didn't it? In the late Yes, yeah, lots of stuff did, did, yes. Yeah. So, Wendy Richard was born Wendy Emerton in Middlesbrough. Upon leaving school, she attended the Italia Conti Academy. Do you remember always seeing the Italia Conti on credits of like children's programs in the 80s? It was yes, like, yes. It felt like every other program for a while. Later on, she would, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to pick me up on the pronunciation of this, by the way. Later on, she recorded the novelty pop record Come Outside with Mike Sarn. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Sarn or Sarny? Oh, as far as I know. Yeah, you're saying Sarn, but I could be making a, a similar error. Okay. Now, we need Andrew Hickey to confirm this. I am fairly sure there are not many romantic songs of this period which include the line, shove it, as delivered by Wendy Rickard. Yeah, unless my copy of Love Me Tender uh, skips. <laughs> I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what the, the lyrics are on the Roland Rat version. I've no idea. But anyway, now... Get your history books ready because I'm going to ask you a question in a second, Till. Oh, so Wendy no. Richard then appears, hey, don't worry, she then appears in a variety of TV programs throughout the 60s. She's in The Arthur Haynes Show, she's in Like the Lads, pardon the expression, aforementioned. And she's also got a recurring role in the ATV drama Harper's West One. She also appears in Danger Man. Tilt, is it the case that every single actor in the 1960s appeared in Danger Man? Because Well, it's a thing though, because... Danger Man is in its own way two different series. There's the original sort of 39 episodes of half hour things where John Drake is an agent for NATO. And then there's the mid 60s version that in the US was known as Secret Agent, which he works for a department known as M9, I think. In the half hours, he's definitely American. In the hour-long versions, he's an American for about the first one and a half episodes. <laughs> he puts on an English accent part way through and just never goes back. But those, yeah, those uh, ITC shows, very, very high demand for on-screen talent. So it's not surprising. Like Jeremy Lloyd, Wendy Richard also appeared in Help. Strange enough, credited as Lady Macbeth. However, her scene does not make the final edit. And also in that scene was Frankie Howard. Oh. This is still surviving, certainly. So. Oh, lovely. Good, good. Now, can you explain anything about this Lady Macbeth business? Because that sounds like it was taken out of itself for I'm a moment. Th- I'm thinking that it's, it's a rehearsal or something like that, that uh, they go somewhere to like a rehearsal room or something and Frankie Howard is like a director. That, this is just me. This, you kind of sprung this on me. But Oh, yes. Yes. She's not she's not dressed as Lady Macbeth or anything, so Listeners, if you want to hear me spring more queries in Tilt's direction in future shows, just let me know. You can actually send me, you can DM me if you want, you can message me questions for me to throw to Tilt without any prior warning. 
I reserve the right to just go webs and shrugs. Well, hang on, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Didn't no, yeah, no, 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 no. We don't use modern twenty first century slang like webs. You don't on, use on modern twenty first century slang. Oh, you, you, you think you're part of the Snapchat generation just because you're on Snapchat? <laughs> <laughs> now then, Wendy Richard also had four appearances alongside Hugh Lloyd and Terry Scott in 1966, of course, and. You and I. David Croft needed to find a replacement for Jill Curzon, who had played the role of Norma Crispin, who was a daughter of the neighbours next door. Wendy Richard read for the part. David Croft took a shine to her. However, this piece of casting almost gave Croft reservations later on. With regards to Serve, David Croft said, at first I was not keen to use Wendy Richard because she had played Molly's daughter in Hugh and I, and I feared the audience would be confused. Finally, good sense prevailed. Now, we're going to come back to Miss Brams later on because it's got an interesting little nugget of information with regards to that character and how Croft originally had somebody else in mind for the role. A couple more characters in the pilot. Nicholas Smith, again, somebody who's in everything. Like Arthur Bruff before him, Nicholas Smith also attended Rada. He appeared in Pantomimes with Markham and Wise. David Nixon, Billy Dainty and Freddie Frinton. Later on, he became an established face on television. He had dramatic roles in Doctor Who, Saints and the Avengers, and he was also a regular member of the cast on The Frost Report, which, of course, included John Cleese and, to give him the proper title, Messrs. Barker and Corbett. He had recurring roles in the series Danger Island, Free Wheelers and Ace of Wands. And two years before the served pilot, he played opposite Frankie Howard in Up Pompeii in the episode The Ides of March, which also featured Wendy Richard and Michael Knowles. More on him later. Michael Knowles has an interesting footnote in served history. I mentioned that Arthur Bruff was not the oldest member of the cast. That honour went to Till. Harold Bennett. There you go. Harold Bennett, born in 1898 in Hastings. Now, I keep mentioning that in the new year, when we start our shows and our bonus content, that we're going to have nice little capsule profiles of each member of the cast. Till I am really looking forward, but also I'm slightly trepidatious about just what information we're actually going to be able to find out about Harold Bennett, because he appears to have probably the most checkered career before 1972. Amongst the various positions he held before the First World War were that of a clown touring with a circus in America. I don't know how easy it's going to be to find information about Harold Bennett, the English traveling clown, <laughs> in <laughs> all of those um, newspapers on, on Google News and what have you from you know, the various uh, states and localities, but we'll, we'll do our best. He then spent the bulk of his career, even though he, he did become involved in the theatre post-war, he spent the bulk of his career working as a draftsman before then returning to acting upon his retirement. David Croft had seen Harold Bennett play the Archbishop in a pantomime entitled The Rose and the Ring at the Theatre Royal in Stratford in 1964. That production also featured Nicholas Smith. David Croft subsequently cast Bennett in Hugh and I, of course, because it seems pretty much everybody in served, with one or two exceptions, was in Hugh and I. Also Beggar My Neighbour and Dad's Army, before offering him the role of Mr. Grace. 
strange enough, early in Croft's show business career, he worked on a production of the musical Belinda Fair at the Savile Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue. And he noted in his autobiography that the financier, chap by the name of John Buckley, was a dead ringer for young Mr. Grace. Tilt, Jesus of Nazareth. You know what? It's been a couple of years since I last watched it, but I think I did keep my eyes peeled for Harold Bennett. I think he plays a wise man Pharisee, one of the high priests, one of those kind of characters. So he's probably all bearded up, has a big hat on, and just looks, ooh, not sure about this this fellow who's going around. I don't know. I mean, maybe he played Judas. I, I thought it was Ian McShane, <laughs> but maybe he worked out for the role. Okay, so what's going to happen in the near future is that Tilt and I are going to have separate research projects. Tilt is going to find out about Harold Bennett's appearance in Jesus of Nazareth, get some good quality, high-definition stills and what have you, (laughs) see if you can find any information about recording dates. Meanwhile, I'm going to go off and finally find that evidence of the profanity that Warzel Gummidge uttered in at least one edition of his... He said cow shed. No, he didn't say that. He almost said that, but that's not what he said. Anyway... Final cast member, Laddie Martin, another face from just about everything. Laddie Martin appears in a whole plethora of sitcoms throughout the 70s and 80s. But in his earlier career, he was a singer and a comedian till the age of 22. And then he began appearing in dramas, including, until I'm throwing over to yourself for any information that you've got about this, the 1959 Granada production of The Skin of Her Teeth which is supposedly the only television performance of Vivian Lee. Now, off the top of my head, I want to say that still exists. Because Granada's got a pretty good survival rate, hasn't it? Well, you keep talking and I'm going to open my independent television drama guide. Okay. That I got from Kaleidoscope. I also have some notes here. Uh, ATV series probation officer. Now, I think the first... That's not the first series, but there is a volume of that on DVD from Network. Uh-huh. A newspaper drama Deadline Midnight, not on DVD as far as I'm aware, but at least one episode had a uh, very, very, very young David Hemmings. Right. Human Jungle, that's all on DVD. As no telling. And then he's uh, then he's in a lot of cop shows as well. He is. Dixon Doc Green, No Heading Place, and Zed Cars. And then 1969, he has two roles in Dad's Army. And the following year, he appears in three episodes of Up Pompeii. So that gives us our initial cast for 1972. So back to 1959. Till, any information about Granada? Because Granada's got a fairly good survival rate, even, even on videotape, hasn't it? Well, shock and surprise, the skin of our teeth does not survive. Ah, oh. that's very strange because I thought I had a copy of it somewhere. <laughs> okay. It is just possible well, that, that time has, has maybe stolen a march on this particular book that I have from about 2010. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave us as a cliffhanger, okay? So when we do... Show one, proper January, we will reveal does Till actually have a copy of this play, which supposedly doesn't survive. So, 1972, we have a series of Comedy Playhouse in that year. There are seven episodes in that run in 1972. Five of them air at irregular intervals over the course of the year. Then we reach the 5th and the 6th of September, 72, as everyone listening to this knows, I Being Served made its debut on BBC One under 
tragic circumstances. In Munich, the terrorist attack and siege which killed 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team led to the Games being suspended. The subsequent rescheduling of events meant that on the Thursday and Friday of that week, the BBC coverage, which was earmarked for 9.25pm, began half an hour later than planned. These gaps were filled by the two remaining Comedy Playhouse episodes. So, firstly, and got to thank both the British Television Pilot Episodes Research Guide, 1936-2015, and also the British Comedy Guide website for this information. On the Thursday, first of the 7th of September, 72, Weren't You Marcia Honeywell airs with Betty Marsden and Hugh Paddock as an ageing singing duo, also featuring Hilda Fenimore and Royce Mills. This is written by Ken Hoare, most famous as writer for Stanley Baxter's. TV shows. Royce Mills, of course, went on to be in the Cut Price Comedy Show, a sketch show which I loved as a child and would really like to uh, see in my adulthood. Royce Mills also went on to be uh, a Dalek voice in Doctor Who. Royce Mills on everything. He's, he's mm. in a number of the 80s Markham and Wise shows. He's appeared with Jasper Carrot and what have you. Just, yeah, and he's, what was that thing we watched with Bill Owen when he's a policeman? Royce Mills was in that as well do that as a bonus show one time so anyway it was produced and directed by douglas argent this actually does appear in the evening newspapers and even some of that morning's newspapers so it's not as if this just suddenly lands in front of people with no warning at all and the same goes for friday the 8th are you being served debuts and we undenied about this but because we've got, you've already heard, and we've still got a lot more to come, we've got so much to get into this particular pilot cast. What we're going to do, we're going to save our detailed description of the plot of this pilot episode for our Series 1 cast in the new year. Now, fortuitously for us, the pilot was repeated in March 1973 ahead of the new series. So the pilot officially was sort of repurposed as Episode 1, Series 1. So when we discuss Series 1 in January, we'll see how the pilot fits neatly into the Episode 1 slot. However, for completeness and what have you, as we mentioned earlier on, the episode is principally focused on establishing the tensions within the menswear department and their new neighbours on the shop floor, the ladies' department. Also, we've got our newish recruit, Mr Lucas. Via him, we're going to learn about the old-fashioned customs at Grace Brothers. I just want to mention, I know it's really part of sort of, it's part, no, it's part of the general setup. And one thing that I think is lost is the idea of young Mr. Grace. And it sort of reflects a certain tendency within British society, which is to keep doing something. And nobody wants to be the first one to stop doing that thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the, the reasons we still have the horsehair wigs in law courts. Is I'm not going to be the one who stops. You, you, you stop. No, you're not going to stop. Yeah, well, there you go. It's easy. Young Mr. Grace, you just know that in 1920, when he was young Mr. Grace, that's what they started calling him. And every subsequent employee has learned to call him young Mr. Grace because that's what the other employees call him. It's just, it's just one little thing that I think can kind of fade away in plain sight. Just that why he's called young Mr. Grace. It's, and it's also why I have a bit of an issue with the, later on when we have old Mr. Grace. It spoils the job yeah. rather. Yeah, it, it does. It does a tad. But we'll delve into that in the discussion of 
Series 8, which I still have a soft spot for. A little bit of information about the pilot itself then. In the original broadcast, the show opens with the traditional comedy playhouse intro and a rather sort of manic, unsettling... What's the word? It just relentlessly cuts between the title in different typefaces. And then we get the, it's the familiar comedy playhouse theme tune. There was something of the Harlech ident about that title sequence. <laughs> I, th- I think it's, 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 with this is more the rapid cutting rather than the yes, yeah. eye bleeding, strobbing. <laughs> After the comedy playhouse intro, we get the served theme itself for the first time in its initial outing. There are no musical instruments in it. We only hear the lift directions, we'll come to in a second, and also the shop noises such as the cash register. Those were recorded by a chap by the name of Adrian Bishop Laggett, a name synonymous with grams and sound supervision on various BBC productions throughout the 70s and 80s. First time we hear Ronnie Hazelhurst's accompanying arrangement is during the end credits. The vocals come from Stephanie Gallercole, who also plays Mr. Rumbold's secretary. She appears in this pilot and also in subsequent episodes across the first two series. Previously, she was seen in the Hugh and I follow-up, Hugh and I Spy. I mentioned earlier on about the casting of Miss Brams. David Croft, in his autobiography, which you really should get hold of, by the way, because it's first class. David Croft said, For Molly Sugden's assistant, I plan to have a young Jewish lady, hence the name Miss Brams. It was quite usual to have a Jewish girl behind the counter serving ladies' underwear, and I thought it would open up a lot of Jewish humour. I wanted Sheila Stiefel to play the part because she has a wonderful way with comedy, but it transpired that Sheila wasn't available. Sheila Stiefel, incidentally, was also another member of the Frost Report team alongside Nicholas Smith. She would later appear as a customer in the film. Now, speaking of customers, Tilt, who was the first customer at Grace Brothers? I don't know. It's in the notes. You might think, oh, you know, come on. Do your research. This is very worrying because I only watched this yesterday. (laughs) I'll give you a clue. He he is billed in the credits as the customer. Who is it? Michael Knowles. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah, but he's not really a customer, is he? Well, he's not because he he only wants to, to, to visit the gents. But nevertheless... The credits do state he is the customer, so there we have it. Now, if we want to set ourselves an impossible challenge, later on we do actually see Mr. Granger speaking to a different customer who doesn't have a line, therefore doesn't have a credit. And this is the first time that Mr. Granger uses the expression, don't worry about the sleeves, so write down with wear. So if we want to set ourselves an impossible challenge, Till, shall we try and find out who that actor was? Who played the second customer in Are You Being Served? Because I'm pretty sure that information is not out there in the public domain. Okay. I'm not saying we're going to do it right now, but we will come to it in due course. So Michael Knowles is a very established member of the David Croft players. He's appearing in Dad's Army and Up Pompeii. And we will hear more about Michael Knowles when we reach series two and three, because not only does he appear again, but also he is the co-writer of four episodes during that period. As for the set, remember that David Croft had sold Bill Cotton on the idea of the programme being cheap. David Croft mentions that James Bold, scene designer, was about to retire. He had been the scenic department manager 
and he knew the scenery stock like the back of his hand. The complicated set cost a mere £600. Croft went on to explain that the BBC at that time was very efficient, the show would be staged, the set would be built, and the studios ready to rehearse with the cameras at 10.30 in the morning. It would be performed in front of an audience at 8 o'clock that evening. By half past 10, the set would be struck, and the scenery for the next show would be set and lit by 10.30 the following morning. On the occasion of the pilot episode, it appears that various items of apparel which were supplied for the set of Grace Brothers for the pilot failed to make it back to the stores. (laughs) After the pilot show, only one pair of gloves was returned to the prop store. So to counter this, when it came to the series, they used pairs of trousers, jackets and so on, which had been sabotaged, had basically been torn and had one arm missing or one sleeve missing or the back missing and so on, made them all unusable so that therefore they could make sure that they (laughs) went back to where they arrived from. Tilt. Now, myth busting. Can I put a myth to you? Yeah, please do, please do. Is it a myth or maybe it's true? Are you being served instant hit, right? No, it's not. Oh, blimey, okay. Well, it's, but, but it is and it isn't. That's the thing. Okay. You see, I was looking, I was curious to see what was uh, up against that first showing of Are You Being Served? But I find that London Weekend Television at 9pm is showing something called Holly. It goes on for an hour. And I don't know, you know, I was hoping it was going to be a, a title that I in, immediately recognised, but I don't know what that is. Holly. Holly is a... Let's just put it into Chocoblock. Hang on a minute. Okay, Holly is a Granada drama starring Bridget Forsyth in the title ah, role. Okay. But yeah, as it stands, we have no follow information about it. It's certainly not one that I remember seeing in any of the network DVD sales. So I'm being facetious when I say that Served was and was not an immediate hit. The first broadcast of the pilot was... A hit. It had 5.95 million homes in the Jigtar ratings for that week, put it in eighth place in the national top 10. So that was lower than Larry Grayson over ATV or Max Bygraves at Thames. His special guest that week was Michael Robbins. But it did outdraw Dick Emery, Opportunity Knox, and even Bruce Forsyth's Generation game. Ooh. It benefited from a solid inheritance, obviously, because it's coming on after the nine o'clock news but it actually gained viewers from the preceding news bulletin. And of course, yeah, it did beat its ITV competition as well. It scored particularly well in London, the east of England, and northeast Scotland. If any listeners want to write in with an explanation as to why Jason and the Argonauts was inexplicably popular in the West Country, then please do, because we would like to know. I don't want to go off on a massive tangent here, but famously there was industrial action in Northern Ireland in 1987. And Ulster Television reported that they had incredibly high levels of positive viewer feedback every time they showed a Western. Right. Yeah. Again, don't have an explanation for that. Anyway, so why are we saying then with that fabulous rating, why are we saying that it wasn't a success straight out of the traps? The reason is that when it gets its first series, which is only about six months away, it's in March of 73, some 
Bryce Park at the BBC in scheduling, of all places, decides to position it opposite Coronation Street on Wednesday nights. And therefore, it fails to, to make a significant dent in the uh, ratings. It took time to build an audience. The second series aired at 8pm on Thursdays, and from there, the figures will gradually pick up. But of course, we'll come to that at the time. Now, here we come to just one of those little fortuitous accidents that sometimes occur in the history of TV. It's always fascinating to hear about this kind of thing. And I guess you always sort of take this kind of information with a pinch of salt, but we've got no reason to doubt this. As the story goes, David Croft overheard Dennis Main Wilson on the telephone to Bill Cotton. And Main Wilson is telling Cotton that the next series of Till Death Was Due Part is likely to be late and will not be ready for its proposed slot in early 73. Now, the subsequent series of Till Death Was Due Part actually aired from January 74 onwards. So Croft takes the opportunity there and then to remind Cotton that he has served, ready to go. Again, he reminds him it's a studio-based show. There's no film, therefore it's not expensive to make. The set is already designed from the pilot. No star names, and they can get five additional scripts ready in six weeks. Tilt. Right. There's another myth, but I'm going to bring out the content warning again. By the way, the reason for content warnings, it's not so much oh, you know, people are unable to handle things. Sometimes people are unable to handle things one day and can another. So what I'm saying to some people, you know, if you think you can handle it, if you think you can handle it, you know what kind of day you've had. So Gary's going to use a gay slur, but it's part of the story. You know, listening to this, if that's going to be, you know, getting your head and stay there for a while and you don't want it. So... Otherwise, skip a couple of minutes. Uh, just pop the headphones out, just leave and just think about all the good things in life. That's that's cool. We cool. Right, Gary. Right, so, okay, there's a very, very famous story. David Croft told this many, many times, different interviews and so on. John Inman told the story as well. So at the point at which Croft suggests to Cotton that they can do a series of Are You Being Served?, Bill Cotton supposedly replies, okay, fair enough, but lose the poof, by which he means Mr. Humphreys. Now, I'd heard this story many, many times, and sometimes it's a, there's a variant of it. Sometimes it's phrased as, okay, but do we have to have the poof, and so on. Something about this story didn't quite sit right. It doesn't click. Now, Croft replies, in his own words, he isn't a poof, he's a mother's boy and he hasn't made up his mind yet. And quite often when this story is told, the reply that comes back from Cotton is simply, all right, then go ahead. Now, I'm not aware of Bill Cotton using homophobic slurs or anything of that ilk. I don't know what it is, but there's just, there's just something about that that just doesn't sound quite right now maybe i'm maybe i'm stereotyping myself and so i shouldn't be doing that but i'm thinking we're in the television industry and the entertainment industry the variety industry whatever you want to call it somebody in a position of cotton's just suddenly dropping something like that for no apparent reason just doesn't quite add up but when you hear the full quote from cotton suddenly it makes some sort of logical 
sense. What Cotton actually said to Croft was, oh, all right, then go ahead, but watch it. That's the piece, that's a key piece that quite often gets missed out upon the telling of the story. Consider where we are. We're 1972. Male homosexuality has been decriminalised in England and Wales only all of five years by this point. We've had depictions of gay characters, but tends to be in dramas and also tends to be relatively sort of subtle by this point rather than overt or open. We've not had any characters along the lines of Mr. Humphreys in a show, for example, that aren't just out-and-out comedy figures, comedy, gay, effeminate characters, for example. Now, as late as 2001, John Inman referred to his partner, his long-term partner, Ron Lynch, who referred to him upon telling a story about his appearance on This Is Your Life. He appeared to him simply as Ron, my dresser. You may know about Stanley Baxter's autobiography, from the last couple of years in which he, he comes out in his autobiography. I think there is something in this about performers and just people generally of a certain era being rather sort of circumspect about their same-sex relationships. And, okay, it's supposition on my part until I'll throw it to yourself in a second, you can see what, what you say about it. But what I think Cotton is referring to is I think that he is basically saying there is a very fine line between Mr. Humphreys, the way that he's portrayed in the pilot, and him being a mother's boy and being camp, and the way that John Inman's character comes across in Odd Man Out. Yes. Where there isn't any ambiguity about it. John Inman himself actually said he didn't enjoy playing that role. Because it's not just the lack of ambiguity about Neville in odd man out, it sort of then becomes a substitute for proper jokes. Hmm. So, rightly or wrongly, where I think the cotton is coming from in this is that he believes that the audience for this show is a mainstream BBC One show. I think that he perceives the audience as being welcoming and having a certain tolerance, but he's also concerned that if they don't get the portrayal quite right, then it could end up alienating some of the audience. And again, you can debate that question till the cows come home. But again, we're talking about 1972, 1973 and so on. So one other thing to throw in on that, by the way, uh, well, a couple of things. One is, strange enough, John Inman actually claimed later on that the first time he ever heard that story was when David Croft whispered it to him during This Is Your Life. And that was in December of seventy six. So apparently that was um, that was kept quiet for about four years or so. The other thing as well is that um, we mentioned earlier on, it's awfully bad for your eyes, darling. And that is about three young ladies. And I think it's fair to say they're relatively promiscuous lifestyle. <laughs> David Croft, <laughs> what? <laughs> you just wanted to be able to say promiscuous. Well, yeah. Yeah, but um, David Croft himself actually had reservations about that show. He didn't like the way that the characters behaved in it, for want of a better expression. I think a lot of the the sitcoms that we see in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of it seems to be about trying to find the boundaries of what they can and cannot get away with on... This is all about you on top of the pops, isn't it? 
Well, it's not again. just it's not just Pete Muddy. I mean, okay, we need to explain that for for everyone. Well, no, I mean that's why I bring it up so you can explain that you. Okay, so so till a few years ago, well, by a fifty-year-old top of the pops. No, what it was till some years ago showed me very brief surviving footage of the Christmas Day, nineteen sixty-nine, top of the pops in color. There's not very much of it around these days. But there is a performance. This is this is Pan's people on sixty nine. Plenty of way to go around in those days. Uh, what, what, no, but is this Pan's people by sixty nine? Is that right? Ah, uh, no, people? I don't I'm think sure. so. Don't even know if it's a named dance troupe. But uh, yeah, we have some dancers dancing under the opening titles. The point is that there they are doing their stuff and what have you. Barely anything. I mean, seriously, next to nothing. And then on comes Pete Muddy, and he's just. He's, Gopping, he's just gone. Oh. Right. And I said, genuinely, no, to tell, I said, can they do that? Seriously? This is BBC television in 1969. The whole, you know, sexual revolution business, only a couple of years old by this point. And it's like, blimey, this is not something you would have got on Christmas Night with a Star, hosted by Jack Warner a few years earlier. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's fair, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to come all Daily Mail, but I mean, well, seriously. Isn't it that, like, so one of the dancers is basically wearing a sort of glittery bikini and doesn't she have like Thunderclap Newman <laughs> yeah. written on her decolletage? Uh-huh, yes, yeah. So that's what, I mean, Murray might be, he's not going, <laughs> Okay, no, I think, I think, is it reasonable to say that a lot of popular entertainment around about the turn of 60s into the 70s? It's what they called the permissive society. Just and, trying to work out where the new boundaries are and what you can and cannot do. Because as Bob and Terry discuss in 1972, strangely enough, you know, okay, the permissive society was a thing, but it didn't get everywhere. It was a thing in London. It wasn't necessarily UK-wide. And it also didn't hang around in the carry-on camping manner of, look at all those hippies next door. That part of it didn't hang around too long into... The 70s. Yeah, it is interesting watching shows of this era and the different attitudes that various people would have had to depictions of you know, a gay man on television, mainstream television in the early 70s. The strange thing is, like I mentioned before about John Emmett's reservations about Odd Man Out, even though Cotton doesn't come out of that exchange particularly well, but I suspect that probably Cotton and Inman in terms of how they viewed how Mr. Humphrey should be in the show. I don't think they would have been pulled apart. Yes, yeah. As I say, it's never an odd man out. It just seems to be what he has instead of a personality. Whereas you give little places for Mr. Humphreys to elude and then draw back, it becomes a bit more... Until eventually you can kind of... I'm just thinking it'd be something to, to track as we go through the entire series. At what point is Mr. Humphreys then allowed to make jokes that he would not have allowed, been allowed to make before? And thinking like, you know, oh, it's the mess stranger, take my body, but leave my jewels alone. <laughs> now, I think in 1972, early. Cotton might have actually had a conniption, but by the time we know Mr. Humphreys and he's our friend, he actually has a little bit more license because it's a joke, but it's not really a lecherous joke, whereas Neville just goes, I'm gay, isn't that hilarious? Mm-hmm. I think actually that, that that exchange you're talking about, I think that might even be in maybe series two, 
maybe oh, okay. it's okay. a cold comfort. But <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we will discover that. Uh, the strange thing is I've got a line of Mr. Humphreys in mind, but I can't, without checking, I can't place exactly where it is on the timeline. But I'm thinking this is a line that you wouldn't have Mr. Humphreys say series one, episode one, but he is able to say later on when he mentions to Miss Brams, he went to a mixed school. Oh, yes. And Miss Brams says, what, girls and boys? And Mr. Humphrey says, no, just boys. Okay, I being served has appeared for the first time. His first series is going to pop up six months later. It's going to be all manner of plot situations, topical references, dated references, staff changes, takeover bids, not the one with Brucey, attempts at boosting sales figures, innuendos, canteen discussions. We will discuss the, the canteen arrangements, dance routines, unusually enough for department store, and a definite, distinct lack of customers over the next 12 years. Now, as we've been alluding to throughout all of this, our podcast series proper is going to launch in January. As ever, the cast itself will be freely available wherever all good podcasts and even some lousy ones are heard. We'll have one cast per series. We're not going to be doing episode by episode because others such as That Does Suit Madam podcast and also lisa and andrew parker on youtube have been there done that what we're going to be focusing on is the trajectory of the series the comings and goings of the cast and the crew where the series fits within the bbc's output each year and just basically all manner of ephemera such as the stage show the american pilot australian series pbs specials guest spots on other shows like Seaside Special, any instances of the actors playing their roles on other shows, see Mr. Humphreys appearing with Bewitched Christmas Eve 1998. I haven't tracked it down yet. I will, I promise. Oh, the, the Irish girl group, okay. There you go, yes. Maybe even the odd scrap of actual BBC documentation. Basically pulling together every last strand of info and presenting what we hope will be a complete history of the show. Now, in order to do this, for the first time in nine years of the sitcom club, we will have bonus material. Till, how should we do this? Shall we not beat about the bush, or shall we beat about the bush for a bit? Um, it's, it's entirely up to you. I wash my hands of this, um, <laughs> not due to any qualms, but due to my base ignorance and cowardice and uh, uncertainty okay so when we say bonus content yes we do mean patreon now we know that a lot of your favorite podcasts for quite a few years now offer you the chance to upgrade but we thought that we would wait until the biggest cost of living crisis and living memory before asking you to stump up do not worry it'll be a mere cup of coffee we haven't decided on the, the monthly amount yet but it'll be ugh, it'll be a trifle be spare change for that you will get in-depth profiles of the cast the guest actors croft and lloyd themselves obviously we're going to do episode watch along commentaries of interactive shows where you can set the agenda and much much more at this stage we're about four months away from launch we would like to hear from yourself as to what you would like on those podcasts and on those bonus shows so please Tweet us or DM us, if you prefer, at The Sitcom Club. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast, starting with our discussion of Series 1. Tilt, is there anything you would like to add 
just to give you an idea, it's four months before we'll actually be recording the shows. It's three months, three weeks, and six days before we'll actually do any of the prep needed. <laughs> Tilt is, of course, joking. He's already, I mean, I know, okay, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to say this out loud, but he's actually got a print of Jesus of Nazareth, which he's holding up to the sun <laughs> right now, looking for young Mr. Grace. And I think you might have just spotted him. Just, was he just hiding he's, behind? He's playing Bob God the Father. Okay, right. And when he says, you've all done very well, you, <laughs> you know you have. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed this pilot cast. If you've got anything for us, as usual, you tweet us at the Sitcom Club, or you can find us on Facebook, and of course, you can find us sitcomclub.com, you can find us on Podnose, all of our Jaffa Cakes material and Jaffa Ville material and so on and so on is there. Till, do you want to plug anything? You've got a couple of podcasts on the go, sort of sideline projects that you're involved in. Well, I do edit, and I have a co-production credit on uh, a history of rock music in 500 songs, which is at 500 songs podcast on Twitter, presented by Andrew Hickey. It's very, 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 very well researched. And he's been coming out with some truly jaw-dropping bits of information, overturned a few myths himself. And it, it really is, you. the phrase I use is, you'll never know what you didn't know until you listen. And at some point I will be making a guest appearance on Goon Pod, presented by Tyler Adams. As I mentioned earlier, I'll be talking about It's a Square World, Michael Benteen's sketch show with occasional appearances by Frank Thornton. I believe I might have been on Goonpod just a matter of a few weeks ago talking about Cluzo. I'll be in the archives. And uh, yeah, you've also been visited by some ghostly apparitions around about Christmas Eve or Well, so. <laughs> I'm way behind on that. I'm like four months behind. But the plan is, is that by the time we get to Christmas, I should have 12 different things of me looking let's not talk about that let's not talk about that because i might just fall flat on my face okie dokies so thank you very much indeed again for listening and can we think of a, a, are you being served related witticism to sign off with well if you got this far in the podcast you've all done very well